Our New Testament reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5 as we make our way through the Sermon of the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the fullest sermon ever preached that we have, uh, the Sermon of Christ there in that Galilean region. We're looking at the beginning, opening section of this sermon, which is called the Beatitudes. Let us begin reading in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Please be seated. Well, it's a classic Western movie scene where you see a herd of wild horses running across the plain with their manes blowing in the wind. It's a picture of beauty and of strength and no doubt of freedom. And the idea is that horses in their natural environment, how they were meant to be, how God made them was to be just that way, to be free without boundaries, without fences. But that idyllic scene is not necessarily true to reality. Any true cowboy or horse trainer will tell you that wild horses, feral horses as they are called, are usually not healthy. They're oftentimes malnourished and disease-ridden and frail. And their life expectancy as a result is less. Whereas domesticated horses, under the care of man, receive the nourishment and treatment and care that they need and As a result, live a better and longer life. Plus, they serve a purpose. Yet it's this idea of creatures or even of creation being left to itself that is propped up and seen as that which is better. This recently came home to me once again when I was talking with my mother-in-law who lives in California about the recent wildfires out there. And one of the reasons of the increase in frequency is because there is this idea that we need to allow things to remain, quote-unquote, all natural, that we need to not disturb the environment. And so as a result, there hasn't been the same proper land management and controlled burns, and as a result, it has created a lot of dry tinder, causing the most devastating wildfires in California's history this last year. Why do I say all of this? Well, I think all of this comes out of a greater worldview. Sadly, a a sinful one in that, that life is best lived without constraints. To do as you please, how you please. And not let anyone tell you differently. In a sense, to be free. To be wild at heart. And we don't want to become domesticated. In fact, that word has almost become evil in our culture. And yet, what we see is that mankind, like the rest of creation, is not in right order in his natural state. If man is all natural, so to speak, then he is radically out of order. And as a result, there are consequences. Just as creation is to be subdued, So too, the heart of man 
must be subdued. And that is a work that God does, and in fact, God only can do. And so what does that look like? What is a heart that is captured by God? Well, I think it is a heart that demonstrates this characteristic that Jesus talks about this morning. The characteristic of meekness. A heart subdued by God will be meek and will be demonstrated by acts of meekness. And yet, once again, this goes against our thinking. To be free, to be unrestricted, to be unimpeded is the rallying cry of the day. But what Jesus says to us this morning, that here is the place of true freedom. To live life under his reign, under his rule. You will not only experience true blessings, but you'll experience true freedom. And in fact, an inheritance forevermore. And so what is this meekness that Jesus talks about? Well, we'll look at that this morning with four points. The definition of it, the examples of meekness. Gaining meekness, and then finally, rewards for meekness. First, the definition of meekness. As we begin, it's right for us to have a review, because these Beatitudes go together. They are so rich and dense and packed with truth that we need to take each one as they come, but we do not want to miss the forest for each individual tree. We want to see the overall picture so that we understand how they fit together. In verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirits. And as we saw that this was a simple recognition that in the face of God we are spiritually bankrupt. That we are literally beggar poor. We have nothing to show. We have nothing to our names. All we can do is beg and beg for mercy, which God in his mercy grants to us. And in fact, it says here, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that this is the way that the kingdom of heaven is opened up to us. And then it goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's as spiritually bankrupt people, we mourn. We mourn specifically over our condition. We mourn over our sinfulness. Those things that we used to revel in, those things that we used to rejoice in and relish, we now see as repugnant and offensive to God. And we need this deep, heartfelt, soul-rendering contrition over our sins and the sin of the world. And so these first two, this seeing who we are and this mourning and this grieving, as seeing who we truly are and really what we are not and cannot be apart from God. It's God that must do a work in us. But as we come to this third beatitude, the beatitude before us this morning, that we begin to see that God does do a work. That he starts to build up. He starts to recreate his disciple. And he recreates them into his image. The image of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That it's through the image of Christ that we are made whole again. That we are made as God would have us to be. That we are made as God would create us in our original creation. And this building up begins with meekness. And you might think that that is curious. That the Lord would choose meekness. Out of all the attributes, we think, meekness? Are you sure, Lord? Are you sure it's not love or wisdom or knowledge that is needed? Is meekness really that which is so important? Is it so essential, we might even ask? And I think we think that way for two reasons. First, there is a misunderstanding of what meekness really is. And as a result, I think we undervalue it. We underappreciate it and even wonder, is it a needful attribute altogether? Because oftentimes we attribute meekness or equate it with someone being somewhat namby-pamby, as we would say. Somewhat wimpy and spineless, a, a, a doormat or a wallflower, just overall dull. We think, who wants to be that? Not I, nor anyone else. But as we'll see, that is a wrong view of meekness. Because as we see in this message this morning, we see several examples of those that were meek. Those like Abraham and Moses and David and Mary and obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet when we think of those characters, we don't think of those men and women being weak. Or powerless? No, we see them as godly and driven and purposeful and strong even. And so we need to rethink our definition of meekness, no doubt. But second reason why we often, I think, do not value meekness is because it requires something of us. It requires something of us that we don't want to give. And that is conformity. Our flesh hates conformity. Outside of anything that we would self-impose on ourselves, Any kind of constraints we say, no, thank you. I want to be free. I want to live as I want to live. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, there are proper constraints. There is a proper way in which God imposes himself upon us. And as I said before, this is... What Jesus mentions here, and I think this is why he begins with meekness, is it's the beginning of building up. That it's the first step in Christian maturing. That the first step is meekness. Because if Jesus said, blessed are the lovely, and those who love, we would say, well, yes, of course. Or if we said, blessed are those who are knowledgeable and always growing in knowledge, we'd say, well, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds desirable even. But he begins with this, blessed are the meek. And our natural instinct is to say, hold on, I'm not so sure that's for me. I'm not so sure that I want to be straightjacketed, so to speak. And yet, I think this is intentional. That's why Jesus begins here. 
Just like with all of the Beatitudes, it's all or nothing. It's on His terms and not upon our own. And Christ deals in the Beatitudes with all of our idols. He knocks them all down. He turns every stone. He opens every closet of our hearts so that all is exposed. All is revealed. And this is one of the areas that we need to have exposed. This is where the light, the holiness of God needs to shine upon us. So what is meekness then? Well, meekness is indeed hard to define, but let me define it this way. Meekness is a heart and mind and life that is subdued to God and is submitted to him in all his ways. It's a heart, mind, and a life that is subdued to God and is submitted to him in all things. Subdued by God so completely that it yields a humble and contented person who recognizes their lot, whatever that lot may be, as coming from God and is under his control. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount, says it this way. The meek man is not proud of himself. He does not in any sense glory in himself, for he feels that there is nothing in himself of which he can boast. Therefore, he does not demand anything for himself. He does not take all his rights as claims. He does not make demands for his position, his privilege, his possessions, his status in life. The man who is meek never pities himself or feels sorry for self. You hear what that is saying? And you might say, yes, I, I hear it, but that is so different than the spirit of this world. Where we're told that we need to get what we can get while we can get it. We need to put ourselves out there, that we need to put ourselves first or otherwise you'll be left behind. And in fact, this is so the opposite of the way that we think, the way that we are even taught that you might say, give me some examples. Because I think these, this teaching is one that is more caught than taught, as they say. And so second, let me give you some examples of, of meekness so we can see this fleshed out, so to speak. And if you have your Bibles, perhaps you want to turn to these scriptures with me. Let's begin with Abraham in Genesis chapter 13. You remember in Genesis 12 that God gave a wonderful promise, the promise of the covenant to Abraham. It's really the greatest promise in all of scripture. And God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you great. Your name's going to be great. Your descendants are going to be great. And I'm going to give you a land that is great. And you would think that if you were the recipient of such a promise, you would start to equate yourself as being great. You might walk around with a little strut in your step. You might walk around like the cat's meow, as they say. But that's not Abraham. As we see in Genesis chapter 13, there is a dispute between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. And Lot was, remember, Abraham's nephew. 
And so Abraham gets Lot. And notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, little nephew, remember who you are. And remember what God has promised to me. See all this land here? All of it's going to belong to me anyway. So you just better be glad I even give you any of it. It's not what Abraham says. Look at Genesis 13 and verse 18. He says, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen or we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Notice Abraham giving deference to his nephew. To one that was surely underneath him. And Abraham is, in a sense, humbling himself here. To do so, you must be surrendered to a higher power. You must be surrendered to a higher promise, a greater promise. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says, is that Abraham was looking towards a greater land. A greater country yet to come than just this dry desert that the Lord had given to him. He was looking towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's move on. We see this in Moses as well. In Numbers chapter 12. If you've read the book of Numbers lately, then you know that it's named that because God numbers the people. But you could also say it's called that because the people number their complaints. The people are always complaining and always whining. And here in the middle of the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 12, we see that even Aaron and Miriam join into the complaining. And who are they complaining against? They're complaining against Moses, their own brother. And we see in verse 1 and 2 that the thing that they bring up as complaints is that Moses is married to a foreign woman. He's married to a Cushite. And how God has used them, that God speaks through Aaron and Miriam, just as he does Moses. In other words, they're saying, you know, Moses isn't that special, right? It's a little bit of sibling rivalry going on here. Numbers 12, verse 3 says this, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. That's quite the commentary, isn't it? And why is it? Because Moses held his tongue. As his brother and his sister were bringing these complaints and probably spreading these complaints amongst the people, Moses didn't go out there and defend himself. You know how hard that is, especially with siblings? If that's my siblings, I would want to smack them upside the head. Say, what are you talking about, Willis? What are you saying? Why are you doing this? And yet, Moses held his peace. He didn't defend himself. Didn't even defend his role. Rather, he allowed God to do it. And God did. That is meekness. That is being subdued. That is being submitted to God and to his way. Well, let's go on then. We see it in David. Again, Do you think of David as being a weak person? David killed a lion with his bare hands. And yet we see several examples of meekness. First in his coming to power in 1 Samuel 24. Remember that Samuel had already anointed him as king. 
And Saul knew this. And he became very jealous for David. Becomes so jealous that he begins to pursue after him to kill him. And we read in 1 Samuel 24 that David was hiding in a cave from Saul. When Saul comes into that very cave, not knowing that David was there. And David is so close to him that he's able to cut off a corner of his robe. And while this is taking place, all of David's men are saying, this is your time. This is your opportunity. This is what God has given you to to rise up and take your rightful place. And yet, what do we see David do? How does David respond? He says, far be it from me to touch the Lord's anointed. He says, that's not my role. That's God's. And he trusts the Lord, even while his life is in danger. That's meekness. And that's something that David carries over even as he becomes the king. Why It is why I think he, he is one of the, the greatest kings of, of Israel. And we see another example of this in, in 2 Samuel 16. As David is fleeing his own son Absalom, who... Absalom is the exact opposite of meekness. If you want to know what meekness is not, look at Absalom. He thought of himself great. Thought of himself as as beautiful and tried to gain the power in any way possible. And he does so much so that David must leave Jerusalem. And there in 2 Samuel 16, we see that as he is fleeing, there is a man, really a nobody, named Shimei. Who begins mocking David. Not only mocking him, but but throwing rocks at him. And David's men are are saying, David, are are you going to allow this to happen? Let us go and take care of this nuisance. In other words, let us let us go and lop his head off. Notice what David says, 2 Samuel 16, verse 11. Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessings instead of his curse today. David says this pesk has been sent by God. And we can go on. We can talk about Mary being the mother of God, saying that I am the servant of the Lord when the angel comes to him. Let it be done according to your word and her Song, the Magnificat in Luke 1, is a song of humility and meekness. Or, or the Apostle Paul, as we saw last Sunday night, that he sits in prison and, and he says that his imprisonment is used for the advance of the gospel. Knowing that it's part of God's plan for him to be in prison. Again and again, we see the same pattern, this heart and mind and life that is conquered by God, that is captive to God, that is submitted to God, never claiming that they deserve better, or they deserve more, or they deserve a different set of circumstances. And so I hope that you are not only seeing the pattern here, but you are saying, how do I gain this? How do I gain meekness? That is what we see in the third point here, because this needs to be a part of my life, and that is the the right thought, that is the the right question. So how is it that we gain such an attribute, characteristic? Well, we need to know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. 
First, you need to be regenerated. You need to be renewed. And if that is true, then you are being conformed into the image of Christ. That Christ was a man of meekness. You don't have to look any farther than Jesus while he stands on trial. And that is crucifixion. We read in Isaiah 53 that he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that goes before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's meekness, and that is a part of the meekness that is being formed in us as we are formed into the image of God, and God uses means to do this. And so when we look at the Beatitudes, we can't just skip the first two Beatitudes and go, well, I don't really like those two, I'm just going to move on to this meekness part. Because what we see is that as we see our need, and as we mourn, what is taking place inwardly manifests itself outwardly. That what is going on in here demonstrates itself with what's going on out here. And others see that as well. That is a part of this meekness that is formed in us. And how God forms this in us is that he uses circumstances of life. Look over that list of examples again. Were these just happened to be this way in their disposition? Or were they zapped with meekness like a thunderbolt or a lightning bolt? No. God used the circumstances of life to form meekness within them. What do I mean? Well, think of Abraham. Abraham's given this wonderful promise, and yet he has to wait years and years before he sees any evidence of it. In fact, he's a hundred years old before he is able to have a son, the promised son, That he was promised so many years ago. He had to submit to God's plan when there was no way or no evidence of that promise being fulfilled. Moses, the same way. Moses has to flee Egypt. Why? Because he took things into his own hands. He wasn't meek. He killed an Egyptian thinking that this would help the Israelites to see him as the leader perhaps. But the Lord says, no, you have taken this into your own hands, and Moses needs to flee Egypt. And what does he do? He spends 40 years in the desert tending sheep. During those 40 years, which is a long time, no doubt he is saying, Lord, what's going on? What are you doing? What's your plan for me? What the plan was was for Moses to learn in the Lord's school of meekness. David, again, several examples. Being the last chosen, the one that was forgotten by even his father, Jesse, but chosen by God. But I think it's the Lord's use of his adultery with Bathsheba that forms this meekness into him as the height of his reign and his power. He took that power, his own privilege into his hands and took that which was not his. And yet through that sin, learned meekness, learned humility, learned contrition. Same with Paul, persecutor of the church, calls himself the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. There he finds himself in prison, but he says it's better to be a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ than to be free and be sinful and rebellious. 
constant pattern and the example of Scripture is that God uses circumstances. He uses thorns in the flesh to learn meekness. And isn't that always the case? It could be something small. It could be something big. But there's always things in our life that we go, you know, I really wish that wasn't there right now. I really wish this or that was different. And I think the Lord allows those things in our life sometimes so that we change, right? Or we change our circumstances. And at times we can employ the necessary means and that change will take place. And through it, we'll learn meekness. But there are other times that we cannot change our circumstances or it will not be changed. And when that happens, we need to come to the Lord. We need to orient our worldview again and say, that's right. I'm a servant of yours, not you of me. And I once again submit to you in this. Submit to this thorn in this flesh. This shimei. This wilderness experience. This dark night of the soul. Whatever it may be, it's for your purpose. And what the Lord gives, I think, in return is contentment. He gives a satisfied heart. Perhaps not satisfied in your circumstances or in your situation, but satisfied and content in him. Again, we we read Psalm 131. Let me read it just again, because I think it's a a wonderful psalm that demonstrates what true meekness looks like, the heart that is meek. David says there, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised up. I do not occupy myself with too great and too marvelous of things. But I've calmed, quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's meekness. That's a prayer of one who has found himself quieted before the Lord in all of his circumstances. Fourth and finally, what is the reward for meekness? Well, we see it there. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And this is a wonderful promise, a promise that's almost too amazing, too awesome for us to comprehend. And we wouldn't even believe it if it wasn't here in black and white. But why is it that you can surrender? Why is it that you can allow your heart to be subdued to God in all things? Because as it says here, all things in Christ are already yours. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is quite encompassing, isn't it? Why is it that the children of God do not have to be concerned with getting theirs, as it is said? To eat, drink, and be merry. To seek just pure pleasure. To be hedonistic. Or do all that you can to climb the next rung of the ladder. To get success at whatever cost. To beg, borrow, steal, or cheat. For tomorrow you die, as they say. Well, if this earth is all that there is, then exactly that's how you should be. That's how you should view life. Because today is all that you do have. But in Christ you have a tomorrow. 
In Christ, we have a future hope. And that promise is that we shall inherit it all. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 18. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, who have left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or lands, for my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then he goes on to give the principle of meekness. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This morning, are you seeking to be first? Or are you content with being last? Knowing that the last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. That answer will determine a lot. Determine a lot how you look at life, how you view yourself in the light of others. I'll finish with this. I remember in seminary, barely having two pennies to rub together, and I was with a friend of mine, and we walked by this beautiful, pristine sports car. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful, and I'm not even much of a car person. But I said to my friend, wow, look at that. And my friend, without even giving the car a second look, said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I thought, huh, you know, that's not a wrong interpretation. It's not to say that in the new heavens and the new earth that we will all have mansions and drive Lamborghinis, even though my 11-year-old will be hoping that is the case. Nor it is saying that we can't have nice things here on earth, or that we must live in poverty. What it is saying is, where does your true treasure lie? In the here and now, or in the later life? Because if it is now, then you have no time for meekness. But if it's in the future, if you're willing to be meek, if you're looking towards the inheritance, then we have this wonderful promise that the meek shall inherit the earth. And since that is true, that it makes mansions and fancy cars but mere child's play compared to what those that are in Christ will receive. For Jesus says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So, beloved, allow your hearts to be subdued. Allow them to be captured, be submitted to his ways, yielded to God, and through that be content. For as it says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, these truths are truly too wonderful, too marvelous for us to even comprehend. Lord, indeed, we are only beginning to scratch the surface. Lord, even as that scripture says, it is far beyond that which we can even imagine. But Lord, may these words of truth find a heart that is receptive. May they find a heart that is subdued, submitted to you, that puts on your ways, knowing that it is not only that which is most glorifying to you, but that is which is good for us. And Lord, may it yield that abundant fruit that is pleasing to you. 
even 30, 60, 100-fold. Lord, may it be all for your glory and praise, we ask. We pray in Christ. Amen.